You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Welcome to the 19th episode of the Impact Investing Podcast. Microfinance is an intervention that we usually think of as being valuable in a developing world context. The idea being that the world is full of hardworking people with entrepreneurial spirit who lack access to the necessary financing to get a business off the ground. These newly created businesses should then go on to have a host of positive effects on their local economies. They'll create jobs and incomes for families. These businesses will purchase local goods and services and ultimately end up paying taxes. So one of the last places you might think microfinance is necessary is in a nation like the United States, which sells itself on the American dream, a land of opportunity where anyone can be successful if they just work hard enough. But today's guest joins us to discuss why even in the United States, Microfinance is absolutely necessary, and how his nonprofit organization, the Capital Good Fund, uses microfinance and coaching to combat a $200 billion a year predatory industry that consists of payday lenders, pawn shops, rent to own stores, and subprime lenders, each offering some form of consumer loans at high double or even triple digit interest rates. Capital Good Fund founder and CEO, Andrew Posner, is our guest today. He's dedicated his career to fighting poverty and advancing a green economy. Andy has an MA in Environmental Studies from Brown University, and it was during his studies at Brown that he first began researching financial injustice and the racial wealth gap in the U.S. that ultimately led him to found the Capital Good Fund. Andy's professional work and thoughts have been featured in a wide range of media and journals, including CNN, the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston's quarterly publication, Huffington Post, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, and a host of others. And if that weren't enough, Andy's also a poet who has been published in nearly a dozen journals and was nominated for the 2019 Pushcart Poetry Prize for his poem, The Machinery of the State. During this episode, Andy and I discuss the challenges that low-income Americans face, how race factors in, the importance of financial and even health coaching in his fight against wealth inequality, how COVID has disproportionately affected low-income Americans, and how the Capital Good Fund has adapted its services as a result. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where we discuss Andy's ambitious plans for the Capital Good Fund over the next five years, and why the U.S. election is so important, this upcoming election is so important to those plans. So with that, let's get on to the podcast. So Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my, my pleasure. I'm, um, I'm excited to dive into this uh, with you. I've got um, some background in um, lending uh, as a sort of a way to um, fight poverty in a, in a developing world context, but um, you're doing that uh, among other things in a developed world context, context in particular in the US. Can you introduce yourself and the Capital Good Fund and tell everybody a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I I was just uh, smiling a little bit when you were talking about the developed context. I sort of feel like, you know, we're recording this in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and the U.S. is handling it worse than many developing countries. And actually, this was something that as I was planning to start an organization like Capital Good Fund, I was wrestling a little bit with, which was, is poverty and injustice in the United States, quote, severe enough to warrant my attention? You know, this was me at age 24 at Brown University, really just under, learning about the financial system and injustice and thinking about how I want to use my time to, to fight it. And it wasn't until I really started researching financial injustice, the racial wealth gap, uh, those sorts of things that I realized that in America, for 
the bottom third of the income scale, it looks very much like a developing world. And um, additionally, I feel that if you can't figure out how to do it in a country that's wealthy, I don't know how else, how you can figure it out elsewhere. So anyways, I, I just started thinking about that because that was actually on my mind a lot back in 2007, 2008, when I was starting Capital Good Fund. And so we are a 51c3 tax-exempt nonprofit organization. We also have a U.S. Treasury certification as what's called a Community Development Financial Institution, or CDFI, uh, which is a program that was actually started under uh, then-President Bill Clinton. And we exist to tackle what in the U.S. is a $200 billion a year predatory industry that consists of things like payday lenders, pawn shops, rent-to-own stores, subprime auto, um, refund anticipation lenders, et cetera, et cetera. All of them are offering some form of small-dollar consumer loans at high double or often triple-digit interest rates, targeting communities of color, low-income, immigrants, other vulnerable populations. And when I first started to learn about them in 08, I said to myself, okay, well, you know, payday lenders, for instance, are charging 300% interest. Surely there's competition in the free market to bring down the rate. And I was stunned to learn that there was not, and that there really was no one offering an alternative to these products at any sort of equitable rate. And that was really what led me to start an organization that would compete in the marketplace on a nonprofit basis, uh, but as a social enterprise, so trying to generate revenue, trying to... Uh, outcompete these, these predatory actors while also trying to advocate for sensible uh, reform that would kind of prevent them from even uh, engaging in the worst actions or activities that they, that they engage in. And so advocacy then is a part of the, the efforts of Capital Good Fund, or is that something you just sort of do personally? Uh, both. In the, in the U.S., um, Nonprofits are limited a little bit. 51c3 nonprofits like us are a little bit limited in how much advocacy we can do. Um, it's like 10 or 20% loosely defined. So we typically pick three or four issues a year on which we advocate. One of them is always at the state or federal level uh, advocating for a cap on predatory loan products. I should know that we're based in Rhode Island, but we presently operate in five states. So those are Rhode Island, Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, and Florida. All of those, but uh, Massachusetts, allow brick and mortar payday lending. And other states have, you know, some states are more permissive on other products than others. But in all of those states, we're part of coalitions that are trying to reform the law to protect consumers. And when you say cap, is that a cap on interest rates? Correct. Yeah. So typically the rate cap that uh, consumer advocates advocate for is 36%. And so that's pretty much across the board what we support. Okay. And, and so this does, it does, does that, are there caps by, um, by state or they're not any as it stands? Uh, so in the small dollars consumer space, so things like payday loans, Yes, that is a state-by-state state thing. Um, Obama's Consumer Financial Protection Bureau tried to tackle this. They ended up putting out regulations that didn't really get at the interest rate, but, but rather some of the practices like uh, they wanted to require an ability to pay test as part of the underwriting, which payday lenders don't currently do. They wanted to lim limit what's called the rollovers to prevent somebody from being able to take out 20 loans in a year. The Trump administration has watered that down even. Uh, so at this point, it's really the best bet is at a state-by-state -state level. Hmm. Uh, but the payday industry has an incredibly law, a strong lobby. Do you, yeah, how big is that industry? I don't know if you've got a sense for na nationally. I'm surprised yes. it's as big as it, as it is. I guess maybe I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> when I say, as soon as I said it, I'm like, well, maybe I should retract that. Um, <laughs> well, payday lending is the best known of the various predatory products that I, I just you know, I mentioned at the start. Uh, there are more payday loan branches in the U.S. than there are, than there are McDonald's and Starbucks combined. Oh, man, that's crazy. And they generate... Um, 
I mean, this is, don't quote me on this exactly because, I, but it's it's somewhere about eighty billion dollars in, in 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 volume per year uh, nationally, and they didn't exist until the nineties when banks really were pulling out of the small dollar consumer space. They were closing branches, and people were trying to figure out. Pre- 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 uh, in particular, kind of private equity firms were looking for what's the latest thing to invest in. And so states started to enact um, special carve-outs that create exemptions from state usury limits. So, for example, Rhode Island, um, which is a very democratic state in New England, right, um, the interest rate cap, if you're not a payday lender, depending on the loan amount you're offering, is about 21%. Payday lenders can charge effectively 261% interest because it's under a different statute called the Deferred Presentment Act. And they don't. They claim they're not charging an interest. Rather, they're charging you ten dollar fee per hundred dollars they advance. Now, when you annualize it, it's two hundred sixty one percent, right? And so, in state after state after state, they got the legislators to create these special carve-outs, and that was just a pure lobbying political power move by the corporations to to enable it. Oh man, that's that's bananas. It uh, is. And, and I, just to, to yeah, put please. a point on that, um, in Rhode Island, um, we have tried for as long as I've been doing capital gift funds. So we're around, been around 11 years. Every year we do the same song and dance, trying to get the state legislature to get rid of that loophole and, and cap all loans at 36%. And there is one reason and one reason only why it has not passed. In Rhode Island, the most powerful figure is the Speaker of the House. It's sort of like Mitch McConnell in the Senate. And, and and we've had three speakers of the house during that time. All of them know the lead lobbyist for the payday industry, who was himself a very powerful speaker of the Rhode Island house. So all they did was they paid this guy $60,000 a year. Every year he goes down and talks to the current speaker of the house and says, don't let this out of committee. And he doesn't let it out of committee. Simple as that. And so this is an individual, this individual, somebody you've obviously had some, experience with I'm, I'm presumably you've heard either heard speak or met is this like what's your best guess as to what's what's going on in this person's head like they've convinced themselves that this industry has value or there's just like oh no i know i'm just crushing people and destroying lives and i don't care so it's a good question. His name is Bill Murphy. And, you know, th- th- it's an open secret that, I mean, first of all, it's public that he lobbies for the industry. Sure, yeah. As to his motivations, I mean, what's that saying about never doubt that somebody can be led to believe what's in their financial interest to believe? I don't know if that was Mark Twain. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have said it. I, I you know, I, I think it's it's very easy to contort yourself into making the argument that if you eliminate if you cap the rate at 36%, these industries will go out of business and then poor people who they suddenly care about now are not going to have access to credit. Um, you know, even though the data doesn't show that, and that's a terrible argument to make. You, you can't say you shouldn't eliminate a predatory practice that harms people because by getting rid of it, they're not going to be able to access it anymore. And that's going to be worse for them. And it's their choice. Um, they, no one's forcing them to take these, these loans. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I mean, you know, and, and that gets to an interesting question, which is uh, to what extent are people that take out these loans irresponsible, right? Because in my space, in the kind of consumer, con, uh, community lending space, financial literacy and financial coaching have been all the rage and really all the rage in particular ever since the financial collapse. And I very much am, and, and we do financial coaching, I should know, yes. ourselves, but um, I very much believe that in the main, poverty is a function of people not having enough money to manage and not a function of not knowing how to manage their money. In fact, people who are poor have to be even better at managing their money. And so a lot of people just say, well, yeah, they're making the decision um, you know, maybe if you educated them, they wouldn't take out this payday loan or they would save their money or something like that. And that's really bogus because first of all, no one takes out a payday loan because it thinks they think it's a good product. 
it's because it's either that or they get evicted or their car breaks down or, or, or whatever. Um, and they're not, it's not that they have no savings because they don't know how to save. It's because how do you save when you're on a minimum wage job and there's no affordable housing um, and that sort of thing. Um, so anyways, that's, your comment really got me thinking about that because um, that's something that we feel really strongly about is um, how lower income people in America actually manage their money versus how they're seen to manage their money explains a lot, right? We have this idea that you are where you are in your life because of your own initiative. And that's completely fallacious, but it's especially false when you think about people that we serve who are predominantly of color, predominantly women, immigrants, all low income. In what world are they able to create their own uh, a path to upward mobility when it's not just that they don't have access to equitable credit, but they have a glut of, of these predatory loans. And, you know, it, it is certainly true that while we have a lot of impact, a loan itself is not sufficient to address all the issues that we're trying to address. And that's best illustrated by imagining kind of a typical client of ours who has taken out payday loans, perhaps they're, in, say, a, a survivor of domestic violence, and um, financial control is one of the reasons why they can't move out of the um, out of the abusive relationship. And so when they're ready to do so, one of the most common reasons why they can't move is because they can't afford the security deposit. And so absent capital good fund, they either take out a payday loan or they stay in a life uh you know, a, a dangerous situation, right? One in which the, the, their life and the life of their children is, is at risk. So seen in that context, you realize that the decision to take out a payday loan is not one that's like made lightly. People know what they're getting into. But you also realize that there are a lot of other issues, like I was saying, lack of affordable housing, um, gender and racial-based violence, um, discrimination, you know, all those things um, are wrapped up together and in, in, to create the dynamic that we're trying to fight, which is you know, poverty in America. And this, um, I mean, this, this is, I guess one question is like, are there other micro lenders or lenders similar to Capital Good Fund doing similar work? Like what strikes me is, and, and so I'm gonna, and I'm gonna make the distinction after I kind of make the comparison, but you know, that in the developing world, there's just, in a lot of many countries now, there's just no shortage. Uh, microcredit is ubiquitous, but it is all geared towards, you know, you're running a business and you need a small loan for, you know, that, that business. What you're talking about is not just lending for somebody to start a business, but a whole host of other needs that they have that you're lending for. So I guess one, you know, I, I'm, I'm just not particularly familiar with the U.S. market in, in this regard. Are there other lenders, A, doing kind of traditional micro lending and then B, you know, is it, is it, is that unique aspect of capital good fund? What kind of is, is what's lacking? It's a great question. The community development financial institution certification we have uh, that I mentioned at the start, there are about a thousand CDFIs as we're called around the country, about 400 of which do lending. Now, Similar to the international context, most of them do micro-business lending. What's different is that a lot of them also do uh, affordable mortgages, community facility financing, and the like. In the consumer loan space, we're the largest nonprofit uh, consumer lender. Mm. Uh, I mean, there are some. So, and then there are some other initiatives that are doing things like employer-based lending or payroll-based, where. Uh, if you work at a, an employer that participates, you get the loan and, and the payments come out of your paycheck. Those initiatives are, are larger, but you know we, we, we operate on a direct-to-consumer basis. There are some for-profit uh, CDFIs that are emerging that purport to be equitable and are instead put a nice glossy sheen on a repackaged payday loan. So there is a massive need for more of what we do. Um, I think it's not seen as particularly sexy by nonprofit funders, and that dissuades, I think, a lot of nonprofits from really moving into the space. Um, what, and what do you think that is? Why, why is that not as sexy? 
Well, I think it goes right back to Muhammad Yunus, who I, I adore, the father of microfinance. And I mean, his mythical microfinance world is one in which the prototypical, you know, poor Bangladeshi woman gets a loan for the cow and becomes, you know, and I'm not, I don't mean to sound ironic and, and I have nothing but respect for him, but, you know, I, I think he, he's gone a little too hard on that, that whole image especially because I went to Bangladesh for three weeks to get trained by Grameen Bank, which he started. And it's an amazing, I mean, it, it, it absolutely amazing what he started. But what you realize is that many of the loans they make are consumer loans anyways, because the line between your personal business and your personal offense, you know, it's pretty, pretty blurry. Yeah. But that has been captured here. And particularly in America, we love this idea of the, the small entrepreneur. Yeah. And, the idea of doing personal loans, it just sounds to people like irresponsible, like you shouldn't need to borrow money. The only thing you should buy for, borrow money for in the U.S. is to buy a house, a car, and, and uh, start a business and go to school. Right. Uh, we do offer car loans, but otherwise we don't do the other products. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, can you just describe for everybody uh, who – what CDFI is a community development financial institution. What what benefits or what kind of create what distinguishes that? Yeah. So again, it's a program that under the uh, U.S. Treasury Department, and it's two things. First, it's a certification. You have to apply to receive it. It's very difficult to get, and you have to demonstrate to the government the ways in which you're using financial uh, services to uplift the marginalized. Um, and there are all sorts of tests and requirements you have to meet. Once you get the certification, you then also become eligible for money from the CDFI fund, which is a grant pool, and also there's pools of, of debt you can borrow from the U.S. Treasury. So, for example, last year we got a $665,000 grant from the Treasury. The other advantage is that, and I don't know if in Canada you have the Community Reinvestment Act or something like it, but... Uh, banks are required to uh, provide grants and investments and the like to community organizations. Uh, and if you are a CDFI, it's a lot easier to make the case to them to make a donation because it is better for their Community Investment Act rating. And also, it's just a good housekeeping seal of approval. Okay. And you can be a CDFI as a nonprofit, but you can also be a bank or a credit union CDFI. Okay. So it really is just a certification that it can apply to a lot of different types of businesses. Okay. Interesting. Thanks. That's great. Um, so uh, let's just switch, shift gears for, for a minute. W tell me a little bit about your background and kind of how you got started and what kind of the steps that you led you to where you are now. I'm curious on that trajectory. Yeah. And I have a fairly unconventional trajectory in that in high school, uh, my goal is to be a, a drop out and become a pro tennis player. My bachelor's degree is in Spanish. My master's in environmental studies. I have no background in business, economics, or finance. And yet I run a very, very fast growing nonprofit lender. I grew up in Los Angeles and um, I'm only child, uh, Jewish, you know, both my parents, PhD. So grew up in a real intellectually stimulating environment and um, really imbibe the Jewish ethic of, um, you know, tikkun olam or doing good um, and, and, you know, love for all effectively. So in my teens, just started reading like a good, you know, progressive teen about, you know, Henry David Thoreau and Dr. King and all that. And so started getting interested in, in social and environmental issues. But the thing that really crystallized for me the importance of uh, dedicating my life to social justice was the war in Iraq. So this was in uh, what, 0203, as the Bush administration was pushing for the war, I got involved in the anti-war movement. And that's absolutely got me interested in not only social injustice, but also environmental injustice. Um, back then the, the thinking was that it was a war for oil and I decided that if the war was going to be for oil, one way I would protest it would be to try to stop using oil. So for about 12 years after that, I didn't drive a car. And whether or not the war was actually for oil, I don't know. But 
that's what got me interested in that. And so the reason I ended up going to Brown um, for a master's in environmental studies was that I became interested in the intersection of poverty and environment and wanted to understand policy better. Um, And as I got in, this was in 2007, there was a lot of innovation happening in financing mechanisms for clean energy, things like property assessed clean energy, financing and on-bill financing and the like. So I, having no background in, in, like I said, in financial services, I started reading about how you can structure a product in such a way that will make the difference between someone being able to afford a solar panel or not, and was really impressed by that. And then uh, two things happened. So one was that 2008, the financial system collapsed. And I didn't understand why a bunch of banks going under would have any impact on the lives of low-income or average people. And then around this time, I also read Bank to the Poor by Muhammad Yunus. And so I'm learning about how financial system based, the, the financial system could be a tool of uplift and opportunity and a tool of oppression. Uh, because as I started to read about things like redlining and discrimination and housing and business lending, um, you know, it became clear that the financial system really has been an extension of racial policies, um, you know, particularly during Jim Crow and even now until today. So all of these things were swirling around in my head and, and they kind of came together to form what was initially a student project uh, in late 2008 to look at, oh, hypothetically, what would it mean to do uh, lending for low-income people that addresses predatory lending and also addresses climate change? Um, by the time I graduated a year later, we had already done our first 10 loans. And as we record this, we've done, uh, 5,300 loans for over $11 million, 90% of that in the last three years, it took us quite a while to figure out our model. So our growth has been very significant. Sorry, what percent, what, how much of that was in the past? 90% of all the loans we've ever done has been in the last three years. Oh, wow. We did, we did more loans last month, uh, 172 for 350,000 than we did in our first two and a half years. Wow. So what is that? I can't do that math off the top of my head. What does that work out to kind of as an average loan size? About, well, about 2,000? Two grand, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and I should note that the, the normal, normally our average loan size is about, um, 3,300. It has gone down because in response to COVID-19, we rolled out what we're calling the crisis relief loan. And it, it goes from $300 to $1,500, which, you know, we, we, we always have done loans that small, but, um, 130 out of the 170 loans we did last month were this product. So that's really dropped our average loan size because as you can imagine, people aren't buying as many cars right now or they're not weatherizing their home as much, which are both loans that drive a lot of our volume. So by doing a lot more of those small loans, you know, we've obviously brought down our average loan size, which is fine. Right. Um, so yeah, I'd love to, 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 uh, to, to dig into that as well. Um, what, what was the thinking on kind of, pivoting there was that sort of like hey this is obvious we need to step in and fill this gap or you immediately were seeing kind of demand for it how was the genesis of that kind of pivot yeah a couple things happened so march of this year uh we had what about two thousand active borrowers five million dollars in loans outstanding uh, the economy starts to shut down right people start to lose their jobs or get or their income gets reduced and we started getting calls from a lot of our existing clients to say, hey, like, we think we might have to start struggling a bit. What can you offer us? So we're a community lender. We decided that we would offer any existing client, no questions asked, up to three-month deferment, no payments of interest in principal. Um, very quickly, about 100 of our borrowers had taken advantage of that. And so we started thinking about what this means for new clients and what their needs might look be looking like. Um, and so we decided that to create a new product that would account for what we're seeing with our existing clients and just in the marketplace. So 
the crisis relief loan has a couple of features that are unique. So first thing is it has a built-in three-month deferment period, just right off the bat. Um, the second one is that we actually lowered the interest rate to 5% from what would normally be in the 10 to 20% range for a loan of that size. We also lifted any restrictions on how you can use the money. Normally, we, you might need to say, I'm going to use it for rent or uh, utilities or something like that. Here, you can really use it for anything. It's basically liquidity for people. And then we also were able to increase our approval rate because we raised $350,000 of grant money to basically backstop the loans. So it's a loan loss reserve. So if we have defaults, we can actually use that grant money to help cover them, which doesn't mean we're approving anybody. But we're, we're able to say, if we would have approved you in February before the pandemic started, we'll approve you today even though of course there are so many uncertainties right. and we've already done 425 of the crisis relief loan. Um, and so uh, are you like, I mean, I imagine it's going to be some time before you see kind of the results of whether you're experiencing higher default rates or not. Do you, do you have any sense uh, at this stage or it's just still too early? So far, we've not seen any increase in defaults or delinquencies. Now, two things to note there. One is it is still early. The second one is that we ended up at, at, at peak, we had 280 out of our 2000 clients were in some sort of environment. That's now gone down by half. So, you know, about half of those people are, are back to paying on their loans. But many are not. Uh, many are still in deferment or have actually asked for another uh, deferment period. And none of the crisis relief loans have made a payment yet. That's going to start happening this month. So it is early. But as long as people stay in touch with us, because of our capital structure, because we're nonprofit, we can extend those deferment periods um, at least another three months for everybody without any issue for us. Uh, I mean, it means we don't have as much in interest income, but it's, sure. we're fine. Um, so uh, the, the risk is just if people stop answering the phone. We'll ex I expect some modest increase in defaults, but I'm not expecting anything catastrophic, particularly because we have raised a lot of grant money to protect ourselves um, in the event that there are losses. So you mentioned that you, um remove the sort of criteria for like, hey, what um, the restrictions for what people had to use the money for. Is that just because there was just such too wide a variety of things that people needed money for during this crisis right now? And, and I guess what, what, like what, what criteria was, are the, is there normally and like why are those criteria in place under normal circumstances? Yeah, I'm glad you honed in on that because um, what we found is that different loan purposes have different risks. And so it's important for us to know what someone normally, what someone's applying for a loan for, for risk mitigation, but also for social impact and reporting, and also to help the applicant kind of narrow their, their, their focus. Mm. We often found that everyone was applying, if, if the max for a particular product was $2,000, everyone would apply for the $2,000. But when we would ask people what they needed for them, they would start saying, oh, well, I guess I need 700 for this and 300 for that, but not the full 2000. And we, we want to make the smallest loan that's, that's effective. And so it's, we think it's good to help people really think about, okay, this is exactly what I need it for and how much I need. And also, like I said, so for example, a, a loan for catching up on rent is riskier than a loan to fix a car. And we know that. And so we can adjust our underwriting based on the loan purpose. Now, for this pandemic, first of all, we knew that given the, the scale of the demand, we just couldn't take that much time to look at loan purposes. And then also, yeah, exactly as you asked, the, the scope of needs is greater than what we normally would consider. And this is just such an unprecedented time um, that if somebody just needs $2,000 of walking around money, then that's what we're going to offer right now because people just need liquidity. Um, so anyways, it, it was very much just reacting to not only what we thought, but also we spoke to our clients and said, mm -hmm. what would you need right now? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's really, uh, that's interesting. Um, 
Do you, I've got a lot, I've got a lot of questions. So it's just a matter of kind of organizing my thoughts. Um, <laughs> otherwise we'll just be off in a, a lot of different directions. Um, do you, are you expecting, is, are you expecting right now any more stimulus money from the U.S. government? And I don't know how close you're um, on top of that. And Yeah, no, we've been following that for a couple of reasons. One is that you may have heard of the payroll protection program. Um, and we actually, Capital Good Fund, took out a, a PPP, as it's called, loan of uh, $315,000. And we used that to ensure we could keep people on payroll. And then, you know, assuming we are able to prove to our bank, we did, we do that, which we will be able to do. It actually gets uh, forgiven and, and turned into a grant. Right. So that's a really nice boost for us because we have not had to um, lay anyone off. We've been able to keep all our staff and Amazing. focus on our, on our mission. But uh, from the vantage point of our clients, one of the reasons why our product is so important is because there isn't a lot of stimulus coming. And the, the, the CARES Act, which is what provided for some of the other stimulus, like the actual cash payouts to people, it's woefully inadequate, uh, $1,200 per person. A lot of people still haven't even gotten it. <clears throat> and a lot of people that we serve aren't, oh yeah, there's still people waiting to get it. Oh, and also we serve a lot of people who are undocumented, uh, for example, and they're not eligible to receive the money, even if it weren't. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, unfortunately, the scale of the, the pandemic is such that it's, it's completely revealed all how broken our economy is. I mean, for example, the whole notion that your health insurance is tied to your job yeah. falls apart real fast when everyone loses their job. Of course. And in fact, we had a I won't say which, but we had a state run um, <clears throat> health exchange approach us about doing loans for people because they were seeing thousands of people uh, have losing their premiums because they weren't their insurance because they weren't paying their premiums. So think about that in the middle of a unprecedented pandemic, we were being asked to make loans. So people would who had lost their jobs would not also lose their health insurance during a pandemic. Um, and, and I'm, I mean, I'm hoping that this allows us to reimagine uh, America because the way that we've handled this from soup to nuts. And, and I mean, obviously if Trump weren't president, I'm sure that we, our curve would be, look a lot more like other countries are handling it responsibly, but we would still be doing worse than a lot of other countries because we don't have a social safety net. Yeah. And, and we don't have a good minimum wage and we don't, you know, all those things we were talking about before that are wrapped together in the problem that we're trying to solve again, which is poverty. So it's been a, it's a difficult moment. Can you talk about, um, you, you've mentioned it a few times. I'd like to dig into a little more of the detail on how, you know, you're ser disproportionately serving um, people of color, black communities, um, and, and how, you know, newcomers to, to the U.S. I mean, it's, it's a, it, women. Um, can you talk about some of the, why those challenges um, exist and, um, you know, kind of in light of what we're, you know, the, the, the current, like, you know, conversation right now around systemic racism. Yeah. And I, I am proud to say that we have been as an organization dealing with systemic racism since our founding uh, in terms of our staff, and our clients and our board has always been incredibly diverse um, in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, everything. When you look at things like the racial wealth gap, so let's just start with the statistics. Was that by design? Was that a conscious choice? Yes, yeah. conscious choice. Yes, absolutely. And it was because I, early on in my research, came across the racial wealth gap and read a lot of scholarship about how Things like redlining, where right, even through until the 70s, it was banned. And even now, even though it's technically illegal, banks would, back then, they would draw a red line around black neighborhoods and say, we don't lend there. And the average black family in America has 10 cents for every dollar of white wealth that a white family has. But even then, that really is skewed because so many black families have negative net worth. They have more debt than assets. 
So that's, it's not a great comparison even then, but still, I mean, they have 10%. And, and why is that? Well, you know, obviously during slavery, they were not able to build any assets. And then reconstruction was, I guess we're getting into very much the U.S. history, but I mean, yeah. basically, we had slavery, we had the Civil War, there was a brief period of time during which we made a, cons- a real effort to integrate African Americans into the country and the economy. And then we had Jim Crow, all the way through the Civil Rights era where Blacks were denied access to credit, and not only in the South, this was also in cities like Chicago, right, all over the country. And then after the civil rights era, you still had the financial system excluding people from access to small business loans and mortgages and affordable small uh, credit. And then you also had things like mass incarceration, um, you know, and and the rise of slumlords and those sorts of things. So um, all of that's conspired to create a circumstance in which people had to fight really hard to build their wealth. And then what happened? In 2008, for example, black families were more likely to have been put into a a predatory mortgage, like one with teaser rates or adjustable rate or or things like that. Uh, And even last year, black families, according to the Federal Reserve, were twice as likely to be denied for credit as a white family holding everything else constant. So if, you know, middle-income families' wealth is primarily tied up in their house, and if black families were foreclosed on at higher rates than white families, then that was what gains they made were eviscerated. Um, I just read a book about in 1921, there was a brutal race riot in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where over 300 people were killed and 10,000 plus homes were destroyed in what was then called like the, the Black Wall Street, which for decades had been built up in Tulsa, um, a, a very prosperous black neighborhood. And in one night, it was destroyed. Decades, and, and you think about all the descendants of those fa- families, that what they lost there, and, and all the wealth that a white family did not have that happened to it, generated from then and inherited it, right? Um, black families don't have wealth to pass on. They have to generate that wealth themselves in their lives, and they have all these obstacles to doing so. Um, that's true to a lesser extent for other groups, uh, Latinos, you know, you, and, and Asian Americans, and that. But so it's 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 a similar dynamic, but also a little bit different because you don't have that his, history going back to slavery. Um, but it's a very real thing, and I think George Floyd's murder just makes those of us who are not of color see again how stark the racial divide is in the country not just in the financial space, which I deal in, but of course also just people actually being murdered in the streets because they're, they're black. Um, I deal in the more subtle ways that race infiltrates our system. And I I don't know. I mean, they're both, they're both work together in concert and are, are, are pernicious, but, um, they're there. Yeah. You know, it's always, um, struck me that, you know, the comparisons, between the U.S. and, and Canada, as a Canadian, there's just a lot of similarities between Canada and the U.S. and obviously a lot of, a lot of differences too. But, you know, in, in Canada, systemic racism is a problem here too. Um, but, you know, there is a very meaningful difference um, in some regards uh, between the U.S. and Canada in terms of like, the, the, in particular, the history. I mean, there's a very, the, the, again, I, I'm going to be careful with my language here, but because I, I don't want to, say that there hasn't been systemic racism. There certainly is here in Canada, but just like the overtness of like the slavery as is an issue, right? Like slavery is abolished. We'll call it 150 years ago, 18, mid 1800s. Right. Um, that's not that long ago that like, and, and, and kind of like somewhere close to half the country wasn't in favor of ending slavery at the time. I mean, like, it was not just like, oh, everyone said, great, we all agree that it should just be done with. And so then you've got generations of, of people who you're not that far removed from, you know, great-great-grandparents who, you know, just like, no, no, I wasn't cool with this ending. And so just it just leads to a different, you know, a uh, uh, different, um, you know, percentage of the population who has very, very different views about, um, and this is the, the more overt, you know, forms of racism 
um, you know, the underlying insidious forms are, are, are rife here in, in Canada too. But anyway, um, it just strikes, you know, it strikes me that, that history does obviously matter a lot. Um, and I, you, know, you see some parallels too. If I, I spent some time living in South Africa and, you know, I'm, I'm by no means an, an expert in understanding apartheid and, and the challenges there, but you know, the, the more you, you, you kind of made a comment earlier in the, in the conversation around, you know, the, you know, I don't know if these, these lines between developing and developed worlds are sometimes blurred, you know, that, that places that we seem, that seem so civilized, or, you know, and, and so advanced are sometimes not at all, or that that advancement certainly in, in, in a lot of developing countries is not widespread. It's certainly very concentrated and not, not uh, diffused. And there's populations with living in, the wealthiest nation in in the world that are really really struggling, um, and the layers of poverty um, and the ways that pockets of poverty can exist in stark contrast to its surroundings, like both in developing countries and developed, is really in a in a sad way very fascinating. Like fascinating, but it awful, obviously awful. But it's anyway. I'm rambling a bit now, but it it brings up a lot of uh, it's an emotional subject, obviously, and and complex um but yeah anyway thank yeah. you for those, those and, thoughts well you know i mean this perhaps is off topic but actually i feel like it, it isn't especially given this era i mean i've obviously i like many people have tried to reconcile how it is that a guy like donald trump can become president but if you really think about it in in this in this plantation south pre-civil war the way the system worked was that the white wealthy plantation owner had to find some way to convince the average white person who was, he was screwing over because he was getting all the wealth and, and most whites were poor. So to distract him from that, he instilled a fear of the black man. Now, this is an incredibly oversimplified dynamic, but the dynamic is basically that, right? The very wealthy and power, powerful use race and gender and religion as a way to get the poor white to ignore the wealthy and focus on something else. And so you can see that very dynamic because a lot of Trump supporters are not benefiting from his policies. And all he was able to do was to get them to focus on their fear of immigrants and tap into um, the racism and, and, and xenophobia. Um, and that dynamic goes right back to um, founding of this country. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, uh, really sad. Um, but it's, um, so I, anyway, I love that, that, that the work that you're doing, you know, whether intentionally or, or not leads you to the most, you know, is, is you're working with the most vulnerable, financially vulnerable, um, and vulnerable in other ways too. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Do you, um, so can we talk just a little bit about, the different types of we've I think touched on it, but maybe formally, what are the formal types of products that you offer? Um, and then you mentioned like in terms of the loan products and then you do one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, yes. And I think there was another service that I read on this, on your website. Uh, we used to do free tax preparation, oh, uh, right. but we don't anymore. Yeah. So yeah, with the, with the respects to the loans, they range from $300 all the way up to $25,000. And the reason for such a big spread is that we are, as I mentioned before, a social enterprise trying to generate as much of our revenue from our activities, namely our interest. And on any loan under $1,000, we lose money. Just the economics don't work. Yeah. On loans between one and two thousand dollars, we start to break even, and it's really on the large loans that we're able to generate revenue that kind of cross subsidizes. Which is why we do larger loans for things like uh, vehicle purchase or refinance. Mm -hmm. uh, we do energy efficiency upgrades uh, for moderate income homeowners. It's our only product that's not really just purely targeted at, at poor and low income households. The environmentalist uh, union couldn't couldn't resist. <laughs> couldn't resist, and and actually, it's logical because there are federal programs, grant programs for low income homeowners to okay. weatherize. Okay. Um. So it's kind of the there, yeah. lowest income population we can yeah make make lo those loans to, 
And then we also offer immigration loans up to $20,000. Those are actually my favorite product. These loans are for any expenses related to any immigration case. So for example, the cost of applying for citizenship, a green card, fighting deportation, asylum, petitioning a family member that comes to the U.S., all things that our first loan in April 2009 was for citizenship, and back then it was about $1,000. The costs of applying are rising. The, legal, the cost of legal representation are rising. The cases are getting more complicated, et cetera. So uh, we've helped about 500 people become citizens or avoid deportation or, or, or what have you. I love that, that product. Amazing. So these are people who've come to the U.S., they're living there without citizenship, they want to get it, and you're lending to them to help them. Yeah, or they may be here, they may be undocumented presently, but they have a path to get a green card, or they may uh, be on a work permit or applying for a green card, or they want to bring family from Africa or Latin America, and, and, you know, all these things. There are are a lot of different legal avenues, even under Trump, to improve your immigration status. But like with anything, if you have a good lawyer, you're more likely to succeed. Yeah. And then talk about the coaching a little bit. Yeah, and, and just before I get to that, we also do smaller loans for things like security deposit, vehicle repair, catching up on rental utilities, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then our coaching is, it's unique in that it's one-on-one and it's not just financial coaching. We call it financial and health coaching. Now, we don't take blood pressure and that sort of thing, but we recognize that half of bankruptcies in the U.S. are due to medical debt. And there's an incredibly strong link between, for low-income families between um, you know, mental health and even physical wellness and financial stability. And that link goes both ways. So oftentimes somebody loses a job and that's a trigger depression or sometimes they lose a job because they're not able to manage their depression. And when we started doing coaching, I was one of the first coaches and I would have, I'd sit down with a client and I'd be like, okay, let's do your budget. And I would say, Oh, I noticed you get coffee a lot. And they go, yeah, you know, I've been really feeling depressed and and that makes me feel better. And I wasn't prepared to deal with that. So I would just say, Oh, well, from a budget perspective, (laughs) that doesn't seem like a great idea. And I very quickly said, well, wait, no, no, (laughs) that's not what we're doing here. Um, so we took a, what's called a behavioral economics or motivational interviewing approach, which says we're using money as the starting point to figure out what are going on in your life, what are your goals, and what are your barriers to those goals, and how do we help unlock those? So it, you know, it uses money as a hook, but if an entire ses- session with a coach doesn't actually talk about your budget, I don't, we don't care. We view that as fun. Um, and so we've been doing that for um, about eight years now uh, with a curriculum that we built ourselves because we really wanted to build it in a way that honors that kind of philosoph- philosophical approach I mentioned at the start around people being poor because of circumstance more than because of their own choices. That, that's really a driving philosophy we have. Are they, um, are they one-on-one sessions, group sessions? They are all one-on-one sessions, um, and we're a fintech, basically, so all of our lending is done online. Our coaching has always been a mix of online and in-person. Obviously, now it's all digital. Um, The coaching, we're doing okay with that. The lending is not an issue, but um, so we're doing kind of a mix of text message and Gchat and phone and sending letters to, to, to keep our coaching going. Wow. Okay. Um, and does it, it, does somebody have to choose to engage? Are they required to go through coaching if they receive a loan from you? How do you? That is a very common question we get and we and very intentionally. And again, as a matter of philosophy, but also as a matter of just pragmatism, do not require that somebody do coaching to get a loan. So the two reasons for that are one, we don't think that that would improve our payment rates. Um, and two, we're trying to compete with payday lenders. And if it's between, uh, you know, our rates are a fraction of it. So if you have to wait two days to get a loan with us, which is about our turnaround time, that's worth it compared to 20 minutes. 
But if you had to go through a month of coaching, you know, the, the calculus is different. So, um, so no, we, do, we don't require it. So a lot of, most people come to us specifically for coaching. Uh, we certainly encourage our loan borrowers, our borrowers to, to take advantage of it. One of the things that's unique is how you pay for the coaching. So we do charge a nominal fee. Again, we're trying to be a social enterprise. Um, but rather than charge it up front, we structure it in a way that builds your credit. So the way it works is you make 12 monthly payments of $15. We don't actually ad advance you that money. We're basically just financing the service. So you sign a contract, you make 12 monthly payments of $15. We report that to all three bureaus and you build your credit while paying for the coaching. Cool. Nice. Love it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I also just on the issue of like forcing people to go through it. I mean, if you force somebody, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. If they're just going to sit through sessions exactly. and not pay attention because they don't value it. I mean, you're not, it's not, that's not effective. Right. If you're just doing it, if you, if you, I told you, you got, you want it, you need a loan, you got to do this coaching. You're like, okay, sure. I'll do the, you know. Exactly. Yeah. I, I've seen, I've, I've seen and heard of instances where it's kind of micro lending where I say, Oh, well, if you, you go through coaching, you know, we'll offer you a lower interest rate, but it's the same, it's the same deal though. Like I mean, somebody's just going to do it for a marginally lower interest rate, and they're not going to pay attention. It's, it, yeah, that's not the right motivation exactly. to, to send somebody through a coaching process. I mean, it, it strikes me, you know, what, what you're, you know, this whole topic is, is something close to my heart. Um, uh, because the, you know, a lot of the work that I do in, in financial advice, uh, in, in, uh, in the Canadian context is, is just recognizing the, the, you know, such a small fraction of the, the country, um, receives any meaningful quality unbiased financial advice. And the same is true in the United States as well. I know that market yes. well enough to know that because um, the concentration of wealth and because the, the fact that most financial advisors get paid as a percentage of your investments. And so you know, it's just not economical to spend any time helping people who don't have a big investment portfolio. And that like is a massive problem. Um, it is because financial literacy is so poor. And I think most countries, uh, most countries, I think, um, where it's not part of our, you know, education curriculum and, um, and, you know, making, even just knowing what you're entitled to in terms of social security benefits and, you know, good financial success comes from like making a lot of good decisions. Not, there's no master secret, right? It's just making good decisions frequently over time. And they're small ones or little wins here and there that compound over time and lead to, you know, dramatic differences in, in wealth over the long term. Um, you know, never, you know, ignoring systemic issues that, you know, that right. you know, somebody's got a foot holding them down, uh, which is a, a different issue. But even, you know, assuming a perfect world where everybody had equal opportunity, if you don't have any advice and you're not, you know, getting good, good counsel. It, it just, it's such a dramatic, such an easy win too. Um, because it doesn't require anything new other than just like sort of that ed education component. So anyway, I love that you guys are, are, are offering that. And the idea that like helping people kind of explore the, I think this is a, a, ma a major trend right now in the financial advice landscape, which is recognizing that like historically financial advice has taken the form of like, Hey, I sit down, I, this is an engineering exercise, right? Somebody needs to increase their wealth. That's their goal. So we know what their goal is, is retire, you know, mass, massive amounts of wealth and retire so that you have enough money to survive, you know, be a, and now it's just sort of, and whatever other goals there are aside from that, but it's primarily a retirement exercise and how do I make the math work? And if you get into, if a client starts getting emotional and touchy feely about all these other things, it's like, oh, okay, well that's, right. You can go deal with that somewhere else. I'm here to do the math for you and engineer this financial plan for you. And there's increasing recognition that, well, wait a minute, you know, money and values and meaning and purpose are all highly interconnected. The idea that money should be unemotional and, you know, take all the emotion out of the equation is absurd. Money's highly emotional is wrapped up in all sorts of feelings of fear and shame and guilt and, you know, hope and opportunity and all sorts of things. And so this recognition of like embracing it's called financial life planning, which is what matters to you? What do you care about? And, and importantly, like what mental blocks may you have maybe unhealthy attitudes, beliefs about money, about yourself that are preventing you from. And so realizing that, well, this is actually a much bigger picture than just engineering 
how to grow these assets, as, uh, you know, and make them last. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I love that that you guys are are tackling that stuff. It's just a really important issue for everyone. Never mind low income families. We all have. I mean, it's really funny if, if you see you know talk amongst your friends or if your 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 partner when you're in relationships and you realize like how people have very different attitudes and beliefs and like the role that money plays in their life is, can be you know, really wildly different. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's something, it's something we see all the time and it's true of everyone. And it's just the, the poorer you are, the more any misstep right. has, you know, the more ramifications those missteps have, but it's present for all of us. You've got no margin for error because exactly. you're just redlining all the time against your, you know, there's no buffer or no income buffer. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, uh, we'll start to tie this together here. Um, what do you see sort of happening in this space? Do you have any kind of expectations for where you like, where you see things headed, you know, sort of in light of COVID and then kind of beyond that, maybe hopes for the future or, you know, issues you're tackling going forward, strategic priorities, whatever you want to sort of riff on in terms of themes and thinking ahead. Yeah. Our, goal since 2015 when we really figured out our model was to get to a place where by 2025 we would be able to cover 100% of our operating costs through the interest we earn on our portfolio so we wouldn't have to be dependent on grants. That remains our goal. To get there we're going to grow from our current $5 million loan portfolio to $100 million Mm. in five years. So we have a lot of ambitious growth plans. And we have a very clear plan for how to get there. And that's, that's our primary focus. There's a lot of uncertainty right now, not only with COVID, but with the, with the election. If Biden wins, and particularly depending on who he picks as his um, vice president, I, my, I'm a very big fan of Senator Elizabeth Warren. I don't know how, how well-known she is in Canada, but um, if he, especially if he picks something like her. But he's already put out some really good plans. Like he put out what he called the plan for black America that proposes doubling the money for the CDFI fund, the program that we're a part of. Oh, wow. And he, pro- he, he has all sorts of proposals like creating a, a public credit bureau uh, out of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that that combined with the fact that this crisis has w- uh, awakened many of many people to the failures of our country more broadly, more structurally, creates an opportunity for us to play a role in a broader conversation around what we want this country to look like. And in particular around taxation, regulation, healthcare market, um, addressing the policy, things like discrimination. I see a lot of opportunity and reason to be hopeful there. Um, I would love, for example, our top marginal tax rate is now 37%. When Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, it was, I believe, around 70%. I'd love to get it back up into the mid-70s. And I think there's an opportunity to do that. So, um, And again, this goes back to the question of how much can Capital Good Fund do through its own work versus how, what needs to be done to address the broader problem of poverty and, and racism. And, and a lot of that comes down to public policy um, that I'm going to be engaged on personally where it goes beyond what Capital Good Fund can do as a as a nonprofit. Yeah, I mean, I uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's just simply redistributing <laughs> some of the wealth is uh, is a, just a big part of that equation. Exactly. It's just been so out of whack for so long, and this idea that capitalism is the best source of you know engine for creating wealth, and that may even be true, but it certainly is not anywhere near fairly dis, you know, distri- you know, uh, proportioned and, and al- allocated across uh, no fair. It is nothing close to fair. Um, and so kind of re- resetting that uh, is, is um, I think an important part of the uh, part of the equation. And I, I'm hopeful that like, I don't know, it just feels to me like this late, this version of capitalism we're in right now is a very strange um I don't know the word I'm looking for is like like it's it's um, morphed into something really you know um, just w- uh, exaggerated form of um, of capitalism like, that is yeah, really unhealthy and I'm hopeful we can kind of like 
salvage it um, because there are some you know really positive aspects to it. But I don't know. Anyway, it's a it's a it's a messy issue for sure. Anyway, um, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. Uh, thanks for for your work. That sounds uh, really fascinating. I love um, how, you know what you're doing and how you're tackling it. If people want to, do you like? Do you ex do you take donations as a nonprofit? And if people want to support the work that you're doing, how can they do that? We do accept donations, and also we accept impact investments. Um, I don't believe we can take from non-U.S. nationals, but we definitely can take donations from anybody. Um, and they, you can just go right to our website, which is capitalgoodfund.org.org, um, and you can go right to the donate page and. Right, right now, we're focusing a lot on our crisis relief loan. And the way it works is that for every dollar someone donates, we're able to lend out $4 of our own money because um, we use that as, as loan loss reserve. So it's a really powerful way to leverage your impact um, enable us to make more of these loans to help people during a crisis. And, and the impact investment side of that, uh, is there an investment product? Yes. Um, we... It's a little technical, but the, the, we're wrapping up an offering right now called a direct public offering, and we're about to roll out another type of offering that's a, it's a 50 state offering. So that one will be available to any resident in the United States, but they have to be accredited investors. Um, but it's, it's basically it's debt. So uh, in both the current and the future offering, it's just a loan um, to the organization with annual interest and little lump sum at maturity. Uh, all the money that we lend out, we borrow. It's for, you know, basically we operate like a bank, except that instead of taking deposits, we borrow money often from banks, but also from individuals and the like. Um, so it's a, essentially like a fixed term, unsecured note, like a promissory note. You promise to repay this amount of money exactly. to the individual and they have to be a credit investor. Do you have fixed terms and interest rates on those? We, well, we do, although we haven't decided what our rate table is going to be for the new product because the environment has changed so much. But in general, we target an average blended cost of capital of 5%. And that's just driven by what our financial model really allows because the average rate we charge is 14. Yeah. Um, so we've paid up to eight, um, but we've paid as little as one. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a question I should have asked earlier in the conversation, but I would, you know, the the essentially you lending to um, low income Americans is a form of investment, and that was the angle I was thinking about more. So I didn't realize that you guys had uh, an impact investment product, but that's amazing. So if people want to find more on that as well, um, they can find that through your site, or is that something they'd have to contact you about? They could just contact me directly for that. Um, I don't know if you want to like people. I mean, I'll link all me. this on the on the show notes and. I can link your contact info, uh, but the website as well. Perfect. Yeah, people can call, text, or email me, and, and happy to tell them more about um, how to how to invest. Okay, amazing. Listen again, Andy. Thanks so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. Keep up the amazing work, and um, we'll have to have you on again sometime as you're on that road to the hundred million. Good luck. I'd love to do that. Thank you so much. It was a very thoughtful, enjoyable conversation. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, I had a great time too. Cheers. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. <laughs>